Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be looking at the parable of the talents. We will be drawing more from this as later, Lord willing, we continue our study through the gospel of Matthew. A very important parable. Talents, of course, in the parable signifies a certain amount of money that was given to servants of one who was a lord and householder and owner, uh, and they were responsible to make use of what they were given, uh, and then they were to make a report to the Lord. And so it becomes very important that they did not properly invest, they didn't do things, uh, or one of them didn't, that should have brought forth, of course, interest and uh, gain. Uh, the other two did, we shall see as we look into the parable. It becomes very important and signifying that we all shall stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account to him of our lives, of our service, of uh, what we have done in his name or not done in his name. So we read in Matthew chapter 25 and beginning at verse 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. In the parable, these talents can be applied to whatever the Lord gives us, not simply to certain amounts of money. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, Thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers. And then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. That means interest. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. James, 
writes in James chapter 4 and verse 17, To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Well, that's been called uh, sins of omission. Sins of commission, quite understandable, things that are done that are in violation of God's holy word and his law. Sins of omission, those things which should be done and aren't done. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. But we want to begin this way. What good would it do if there's an important job, as it were, a responsibility that one is given? What good would it do? No matter how mentally, intellectually capable they may be, no matter the abilities that might be given to them, or the talents we use in the sense of whatever abilities they have and apply it that way, that one may possess if they do not prove themselves to be faithful, dependable in small matters. What good does their ability do if they are not faithful, if they cannot be depended upon? Timothy was instructed to commit the ministry of the word, quote, to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. But ability does not always mean disciplined, diligent, dependable. The most important thing is not how much or how high one's ability. The most important thing is how committed are they? How committed? It used to be the preaching of a thing called total commitment given up completely to Christ, belonging to him, looking to him to do his will, to do his bidding, to be his light in this world of darkness, to serve him and his people, to glorify the name of the living God. And total commitment, not a halfway commitment, the most solemn commitment to the Lord himself, not to the world, not even to an employer, not even to family, to Christ. We read about that, didn't we, this morning? It came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. said to another, Let me uh, uh, follow me. Let me go first and bury my father. Let the dead bury the dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Let me go bid them farewell, at least at home. No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. There are those who serve, should serve right where you are, where God puts you providentially. I read yesterday from a missionary report, one who was severely uh, afflicted because of the sickness that was uh, gotten on the mission field in Indonesia. And Paul Snyder, some of you may know and may read about his reports sometimes from time to time, and uh, tremendous trouble he's gone through. He's wanted to go back. He's getting better. Wanted to go right back to the mission field and serve the Lord on that, that field and, and those people that are there. Uh, no matter, he's ready to die on the field if he goes. That's total commitment that he has. That's given up to Christ for his glory to be used of him. Dependability, faithfulness. And that's the most important thing. So however small or great, you and I might think, our ability, think about our abilities. Even we think they're very small. Even with a measure of uncertainty. I don't know if I can do such and such. Or you remember Moses. When God called Moses, who he's going to 
used to lead the people out of Egyptian bondage? What does Moses say to him? Here I am ready to go. No, not at first. He says, I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Or even the prophets, like Jeremiah, the prophet. When God calls Jeremiah, he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. In other words, he didn't think he had the ability. Or even like Isaiah, the prophet. When he says, I am a man of unclean lips. Yet, if you and I truly believe in the absolute sovereignty of the living God, that he's over all things, that he moves, that he provides, that he sustains, that he enables, that he gives, then uh, it's not our ability to which we must look. We're not to trust ourselves or our ability. We're to trust in him. We're to look to him. We're to believe him. Just like that. Uh, I consider it a promise in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. If God calls us to something in his word, he enables. He gives the ability. He gives the grace. He gives that enablement to one who truly obeys him by faith and moves out by faith. But we often do we not see the responsibilities far greater than our own resources to be able to meet it. And the Apostle Paul, he goes to the Corinthians and says, I come to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's not a bad thing. Because Isaiah hears the words from God in Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2, To this man will I look even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my words. How many tremble at the word of God? How many tremble? I tremble at the responsibility that I have. I tremble at the responsibility to minister and proclaim the word of God and to handle the truth of God. That's a solemn thing. And God requires faithfulness in his stewards. He requires that. Don't feel like we have the ability? Well, our small loaves and fishes don't present any barrier whatsoever to the Lord. None. And when we have his word and we act only upon his word and nothing else, we look to him, we look to his word, not to ourselves, not to our abilities, and he says, as he did to that young boy who had the loaves and fishes, bring them hither to me. He knows how to give us what we need and to enable us to magnify and honor him and serve him. So faithfulness to God, obedience to his word by faith, yeah, George got somewhat my message again this morning. I do it every time. <laughs> That's okay. Does faithfulness to God guarantee ability? Fair question. I mean, we can feel ourselves unable. We can feel, I just don't know that I can do such and such. Well... <clears throat> Not only does God give ability to those who faithfully by, uh, and, and by faith obey him, he increases it. He gives more. He giveth more grace. That's what James, of course, uses in his words. Because our Lord makes clear that character is far more important than success. Hello, listen to that again. Character is far more important than success. It's far more important than a high IQ. It's far more important than worldly abilities. 
character, trustworthiness is far more important than many talents. If I owned a business and had employees, I'd put the greater value on those you could trust that would be there, dependable, even if there were those that were smarter and had more degrees or whatever. Wouldn't you? The faithful man possesses a far greater good than the keenest intellect and ability that lies dormant. The Lord Jesus says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If you can commit confidently to one because they have a faithful character to small matter and they take care of that, they're diligent in it, you can commit the greater things to them. Don't care what abilities they might have. If you put something in their hands and they're lazy, they don't do a thing, they don't take care of it, they don't labor to, to do what they're given to do, they're not going to have the worth to an employee or employer that the one that's there and faithful is going to have. Correct? Character determines use. So that the Lord Jesus says, Whosoever hath, to him shall be given. And whomsoever hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. In this parable that we read, in the parable of the talents, the Lord described the diligent servant as good and faithful. And then he condemned the unproductive servant as wicked and slothful. The parable shows the responsibility of a servant to his master in making his Lord's business his business. To take whatever is put into his hands and diligently endeavor to improve it. Always aware that what he has didn't come from himself. It was given him. It was not to be used for selfish purposes. It came from his Lord. Not for simply personal benefit, but for the profit of his Lord. What he is given to use is his Lord's property. Everything we have is given us. Even if we use the abilities and are faithful in what we do, that comes from the Lord too, as well. Everything we have. What this one in the parable or these in the parable are given, it's their Lord's property. It belongs to him. The whole duty of the servant is to make diligent use of it for the profit of his Lord. Motivated and moved by the firm knowledge and the belief that he's going to have to give an account. He's going to have to stand before his Lord and tell him why something took place as it did or why he gained for his Lord or why he did not gain for his Lord. Why he was a diligent, faithful servant or a lazy, do-nothing servant. Blunt language. And when that time certain to come arrives, there will either be heard joyfully, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or there shall forever ring in the heart the bitter words, thou wicked and slothful, lazy. Thou wicked and slothful servant. What is the special excellence of a servant? What is a servant's goodness? It is fidelity. Complete loyalty 
total devotion to his Lord and his Lord's interests. Correct? That's what we learn from the parable. And the only way this is shown to be true is by what he does with that which the Lord has given him. Faithfulness. The diligent, focused, consistent, persistent, heart-rendered doing of our Lord's will is the grace he will praise in the day of judgment. Not how smart we were. Not how much we had. Our diligence and faithfulness to him. Every one of us shall give account of ourselves to God. Our requirement. Our first and foremost responsibility as servants, stewards, charged with making the best use of our Lord's depositive gift or gifts is to make use of it to the utmost of our ability. God requires faithfulness. He requires it. And yet there are times when people just go to their own things, their own interest. Like Paul writing to the Philippians, he's going to send some that are faithful, will serve them correctly, will will be uh, self-sacrificial uh, in what they do for them. But he has to complain that all men seek th- their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. I look into the book of Proverbs and I hear Solomon. He looks around and he, guys, he, he spies the condition of men. He says a faithful man's hard to find. One dependable, completely dependable, hard to find. A faithful man who can find. A solemn thing. So it's rare sometimes to have one who is truly, totally committed to the Lord himself. So... God forbid that we should be classed with those of another parable where the servant who was charged with managing his Lord's property quote, wasted his goods. This is not limited, by the way, to preachers. Because whatever God entreats you with is never just for yourself, never only for you. That's a solemn thing to think about. Whether abilities, whether it be capacities, wealth, time, it's all given to you by God for His glory to enable you to be serviceable in His kingdom. Throughout the Lord's parables, you will find in various ways stated reiterated, reinforced that you will be required to account to the Lord for everything you have and how it's used. That servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, to him shall much be required. To whom men have given committed much to him they will require the most so if a servant's good is his faithfulness dependability commitment if a servant's good is his faithfulness to make diligent use of what his lord has committed into his or her hands then the wickedness of the wicked servant is what? It's his do-nothingness. His laziness. His neglect. Because he knew his Lord's will and did it not. He knew it. God hasn't hidden his word from us, has he? We don't have to go to heaven to bring it down. 
We don't have to dive into the depths of the ocean to try to bring it up. We have the word of God given us. We have the truth of God given us. We have the revealed will of God made known to us. Do we not? In his word. How many so-called professing Christians do nothing whatsoever to serve God and others? That's a solemn thought, isn't it? So is the slothful, neglectful, inattentive failure to actively do what the Lord commands, though there be no positive moral transgression, if one just does not do what they are commanded, is that enough to show the justice of their ruin? Solemn message, isn't it? We rejoice with the highest of joy that salvation is all of God, do we not? It's all by His grace. Wondrous, sovereign grace, and that alone, not by our works. Even our faith in Christ, even a genuine godly sorrow and repentance from sin is God's gift. It's by His grace, by His work. We believe only by regeneration because God gives us newness of life. We repent only because God gives us to see the horrendous nature of sin and we come to hate it. I want nothing to do with it. That God loved us whom he called by his gospel, loved us. That he sent his son, the son of his love. The highest object of the love of the father is his son. He gave him. And he gave him to be the one acceptable sacrifice for our sins. Removing his wrath from us. Our propitiation. That's the wrath-removing sacrifice. The propitiation for our sins. We were before not his friends. We were his enemies. We were enemies by wicked works. We were enemies that showed itself in what we said, what we do, where we went, what we did. Enemies to God. Yet he reconciles us to himself by the death of our Savior, by the death of his Son, by the cross, with a love behind it that we can't comprehend, I cannot fully comprehend, I don't think eternity will enable us to comprehend the gloriousness, the depth, the wondrousness of this love that God giving his Son to save sinners, giving his son to die in the place of sinners giving his son to die and become the propitiation for our sins who are called by the gospel redeeming us by his own sovereign goodwill through Christ crucified where that love of God is in truth there will be love for him there will be love for him. His love will draw that out. His love will be the source of our loving him. We love him because he first loved us. Glorious. God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ, died for us he took all the punishment all the wrath in our place in our stead cleanses us by his blood calls us by his Holy Spirit 
grants us through regeneration faith in himself to look to and trust in him. Where the love of God is in truth, it will always, always lead to a giving up of ourselves to him. To do as well as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I think, verse 10, to turn from idols, including the idol of self-will. To turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Where that salvation is real, it will move our hearts to want to be given up to him. You whom God called by that gospel. You who by faith saw the Christ of God dying in your place. Didn't that grab your heart, your thoughts, your desires? Every day when you woke up, when that first took place, he became your first love. Preeminent love above all other things. Right? Am I right? Oh, how we need to guard our hearts then. There's absolutely no conflict then between free justification through faith in Christ alone and self-sacrificing submission to him. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Where justification by faith is only presented as a propositional doctrine to be intellectually believed only without the Lord's call to love, obey, and serve him. You can end up with one that becomes a do-nothing. A do-nothing. Where there is no work, where obedience to Christ and his commands are neglected in self-interest, there is no saving faith, which always, without exception, is shown to bear fruit. You remember that seed of the word that fell on good ground? How was it known that it fell on good ground? That which fell on the good ground bore fruit with patience. Some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, some in hundredfold. Fruit was born. James, show me thy faith without thy works. And I will show thee my faith by my works. It will be demonstrated. It will bear fruit. It's for sure that when works are added to a professed faith for salvation, those or, or, or there has been then no true understanding of the gospel. The glory of God's grace is di diminished in that. A finished work of redemption then is denied. And no matter how many works, if they're trusted for salvation, they proceed from a corrupt heart. George quoted this morning from Matthew 7. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. On the other hand, the same corrupt self-interest that may move one to seek their own glory have we not done many wonderful works? Moves others to neglect, to do nothing. 
to make their life in this world central. To do nothing in a self-sacrificing, working love for the one they profess to have saved them by grace from sin. Something there is inconsistent, isn't it? When the Lord Jesus Christ comes in final judgment, when that judgment takes place, when every one of us will be required to give an account of ourselves, we shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. There will be shown as much justification for the eternal ruin of the do-nothings as there will be for those who embraced a self-glorifying works gospel. They both. There will be no excuses in that day. There won't be any absences excused from that meeting. Nothing then will take precedence over what the Lord of all himself has appointed. No voice will keep one. No persuasion will keep them from that meeting. No family pleading with them that something is more important will keep them from that meeting. No friend will be able to persuade them to be absent from that meeting. No desire of the things in this world will keep them from that meeting. Not the inward voice of sloth, laziness, self-justifying neglect will prevent standing before the judgment seat of Christ. We shall all appear. That's a solemn thing, isn't it? We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And if these voices do not drown out the voice of our Lord now, his voice, who says, my sheep hear my voice. If those voices do not now drown out his voice, then they will not be able to testify against you there. First John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. See if I can remember it. Yeah, I'm going to have to look there. First John chapter 2. As soon as I get there, I'll remember it. But anyway, First John chapter 2. Verses 28 and 29. John the Apostle writes, And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he, Christ, is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth practices righteousness is born of him. In other words, the life will show the truth of the profession of faith. The life itself will testify as to the reality of one's genuine faith or not. We're to abide in him. He is coming. We don't know when he's coming. All kinds of fanciful stuff. The Lord Jesus Christ said the times and the seasons the Father put it in his own power. We won't know them. No matter what men try to say. The Apostle Paul reiterated that to the Thessalonians. The times and the seasons. You have no need there. Indeed, we don't know them. We don't know the times. We don't know the season. We know to be ready. <laughs> be also ready. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. That's a solemn thought and a blessed thought for the believer. We're going to have to account to him for what he's given us. How we've made use of it. 
We're not justified by what we do. We're only justified because of what he did. But if we have that genuine faith in him, it will bear fruit. He taught that very clearly, of course. And it's not because we try to produce the fruit. It's because we continue to abide in him, to look to him, to trust in him, not in ourselves, not in our works, not in our fruit, in him. So if you don't let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, maybe simply because you failed to obtain the oil for the light. You remember the parable of the ten virgins also in Matthew 25? Five were wise, five were foolish. Five of them had oil in their vessels. They were trimmed and ready to meet the Lord when he would come. They were looking for him, preparing for him, waiting for him, longing for him. The other were the slothful, foolish virgins. They didn't have any oil. Oil the type of the Holy Spirit. God gives his spirit to those who trust him, Jesus Christ and him crucified. They look to him. They have oil in their vessels. The only purpose, of course, of the lamp is the light. So those who have oil in their vessels, they are light. Their light shines before men. The world knows they are Christ. They belong to him. Their light shines in the world. Their activities, what they do, where they go, what they love, shines forth to the world that he is supreme to them. But the foolish virgins, when the Lord comes, when the bridegroom cometh, they shall be left out. They're constructed to go to those who sell. That's interesting. Buying and selling in the biblical sense has to do with the gospel. Go to those who sell where you can purchase without money and without price. Buy the truth and sell it not. Go quickly, for at such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh. If you are here unsaved this morning, go quickly. He is going to come. And it's not going to be announced when. It's going to be sudden. Unexpected by the world. Then in that coming and final judgment, those who shall go away into everlasting punishment are as guilty by knowing to do good and doing it not as those who commit deliberate moral sin. Is that true? You gave me no meat. You gave me no drink. You visited me not. That's all a message, isn't it? So, what will really move those who know to do good but don't? What will move them to become a doer of the word and not a hearer only? What will move them to that? Well, it won't be the mere knowledge of what they should do because they already know in their conscience what they should do. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Well, 
There can come some outward pressure, arguments, maybe even strong preaching to find some temporarily move to, as Peter put it, escape the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for a while. Or there might be some who would hear you if you endeavored to be a witness for Christ, like Herod. Remember John the Baptist? The Lord said he's a bright and shining light. You were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. He was so powerful in his witness and testimony that even Herod did many things and heard him gladly. But if the nature of the inner being, if the heart remains just the same, it will always revert to seeking its own things and it will eventually show itself a Demas. The world, after all, having the heart. It's a solemn thing, I know. Even the true saint, even the one who is in Christ, even the one who knows him, even the one who is genuinely saved by God's wondrous grace, still needs exhortation. We need exhortation. You, dear saint, you need exhortation. You need to be called to duty by the word of God, by the truth of God. But exhortation only works where there is a heart to hear and keep and do God's word. It only works where there is a new heart. why the Lord could say to the Jews who believed on him or professed to believe on him well they had a kind of faith but it wasn't saving faith if you continue in my word then are you my disciples indeed and ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free you see the Lord didn't deal like religion does like even so called modern fundamentalism and evangelicalism does that if you do this and you do that then you're saved no the Lord says if you continue that's what shows it. These people are called overcomers. There has to be a reality that shows up before one is declared and really should be given full assurance of faith that they are saved. Well, <clears throat> there is coming judgment. Listen carefully. And that is a motivation. There is coming judgment as a motive. But that's not the highest motive. That's not the highest motive. He who does not fear God, who is not moved in some way by the knowledge that he shall be called into account, but what he or she does, whether it be good or bad, may have intellect, great abilities, personality, wealth, many friends, but totally lack the least of true wisdom. We see that today. We've got people graduating from college and universities that are educated fools. That's exactly what they are. They're educated fools. It's unbelievable what they're being taught and swallowing. Peter assures those who truly possess, quote, the knowledge of God, who is set apart by the Holy Spirit, quote, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ that they have and shall be kept to eternal inheritance. If you're in Christ, if you look to him, if you trust him, if you come to know him aright, you'll be kept. You'll be kept to an eternal inheritance. That's assured in the scripture because you're kept by the power of God through faith. 
unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Because these have truly been redeemed, quote, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without spot and without blemish. Yet he calls on these to whom he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, these things, that they're kept to the eternal inheritance, that they're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That they are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Yet Peter calls on these to walk in God's fear in light of the coming judgment. In 1 Peter 1.17 If you call on the Father who without respect of person judgeth according to every man's work in you to live your life in the fear of God. But do you know what the highest motivation is? What is the highest motivation? To the doing of the word of God. You know what the highest motivation is? Very simple. A living, loving, genuine relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no higher motivation. There is nothing that moves the heart like the knowledge of a grace that makes known a love that's not earned, could never be earned. A love not worthy of. A love that loved you in spite of you. A love so great, so costly, that the one who loved you chose you for himself and removed the barrier of sin by dying the death you deserved, taking the punishment that should have been yours, giving not only himself for you, but giving himself to you, wanting you. Wanting you. I'm honest as I can possibly be. I don't comprehend how he could want me. A sinner. But he did. And you who hear the word of God. Aware of this horrendous thing called sin that separates from God. But knowing between you and God that this has been removed by Christ crucified in your place because he loved you and wanted you and thus redeemed you to himself to be his and his alone. There couldn't be a higher motive for serving God, for walking with him. This is the love and being truly believed. This is the love that will move you to become a doer of the word and not a hearer only. You remember the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 21, hours away from the cross, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him. And will manifest myself to him. You want to walk with Christ? Love him supremely and keep his word. You will know his sweet presence. This is the love that born out of love that moved Peter and Paul the apostles so it moved Paul to turn his back on everything he'd gained in the world everything that was gained to him in this world everything that was gained to him who was really exalted by his countrymen as a great leader among them 
and all kinds of degrees, we would th say today. He was highly educated. He lived in the place where they had the Ivy League schools of his day that he attended. He gained much. He said, but they were nothing less than dumb that I may win Christ. Why? Because he can say in Galatians 2.20, he loved me. Me, the rebel. Me, the blasphemer. Me, the persecutor. He loved me. <laughs> and gave himself for me. This love is so firm, so unchangeable, that it freely forgave a Peter. He was so bold that he was going to go to Christ all the way to death that a little girl then tripped him up. And he denied his Lord three times. Then at the resurrection of Christ, one day on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Peter in the boat, out fishing, it's the Lord. Peter, it's the Lord. It's the risen Savior, it's the Lord. He's there on the shore waiting. He has no hesitancy to jump into that Sea of Galilee to get to Christ. He's forgiven. He's restored as if there'd never been any sin. No denial. Isn't that amazing? Can we not consider that, that when he calls us by this gospel, he makes us his own. Our sins are gone. No matter how horrendous they are. And they're horrendous to us because when we're convicted, sin becomes big. No small thing. And yet, he puts it all away. It's gone. They're gone. They're gone. I want to belong to him, don't you? I want to belong to him who loved me. A love I can't fully comprehend. So glorious, so great. Great love wherewith he loved, as Paul wrote about in Ephesians 2. And gave himself for me. I want to be his. I don't want to belong to myself. I want to belong to him. I don't want to lead my way. I want him to guide me. And what he has given me, I want to be used for his glory. Don't you? What higher motivation could we have? This is the love so firm, so unchangeable, that it freely forgave Peter, that it forgave the chief of sinners, that told the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. That washes away all sin from God's judicial sight. If there's not a love in return for that kind of love, a love for him supremely above every other, a love that calls to you and to me, especially in a special way to me, lovest thou me more than these. A love that moves to give yourself away. I don't know of any other way that you can become a doer of the word. What a savior. What a Lord. What a salvation. How glorious 
his redeeming grace. The salvation that is eternal. When we do stand before the Lord, if by God's wondrous grace and that alone, he can say to you and me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. We're going to have to say, Lord, you did it all. All the glory is thine, not mine. You did it all, even working in me, both to will and to do of thy good pleasure. Giving me the faith. Whatever abilities were there came not because I had them by nature. You gave them. It came from you. Thou art worthy. Thou alone art worthy. May God bless the ministry of his holy word.